Hello and welcome to the RGU Physiotherapy Society podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. On this week's episode, I sit down with Dr. Amanda Johnson. To give you some background on Amanda, Amanda's worked for a variety of posts, both at the junior and senior level in the NHS, initially in London and then back in Manchester. Amanda's always been involved in sports teams, initially with swimming and then athletics, working as a physiotherapist to the England athletics team. She's worked as a physiotherapist for several sports at a high level, including Great Britain aquatic teams, particularly swimming, synchronized swimming, and 10 years of the GB diving squad. And then later moved to Altracam, a semi-pro club. She then served for five years as the England women's football team physio and as a senior lecturer for the Football Association. In addition to this, she spent 10 years as a senior physiotherapist at the Academy of Manchester United before becoming the lead physiotherapist at Aspire Academy for the next eight years. Prior to coming back to the UK, Amanda spent some time in India setting up a football academy in the Punjab region before joining Manchester Metropolitan University as a lecturer at the physio school. Her PhD and research interests are related to issues and injuries suffered by developing UFA athletes in all sports. This has led to her presenting many international conferences on youth development, maturity and injury. That's quite some background. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Mandy. Good morning. Nice to be here. No. Excellent to have you on, Mandy. As I was saying to you off air, you know, I've I heard you on Rob Anson's uh, Athletic Evolution podcast. I'm a good friend of Rob's, so I was definitely someone I wanted to bring on, have a good chat to you about just your experience in the profession and, you know, how your career has progressed through it as well. Yeah, it's been a, a very, very diverse um, career in many ways and and I have got to honestly say none of it's been planned <laughs> it's uh, a lot of it is I mean planned in so much as I always knew I wanted to go into sport but not planned in, in which areas I was going into or you know how I was going to do it it's all um, uh, you know knowing people and talking to people and just taking chances really mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah so uh, yeah very varied career um, both here and abroad so uh, but it's been interesting it's been good fun yeah definitely definitely and I mean usually I'd kick off the podcast Manny by just saying you know could you just give us an overview of where your career started out and where you're currently at but I think with the the, the breadth of knowledge and experience you've gained I think that'd be a bit of a disservice so can you just take <laughs> us back to the start and just tell us how your career has progressed well uh, I mean I was always uh, when I was at school it was either going to be PE or physio because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was very heavily involved in sport from a very early age. Um, it was either, it was either um, first of all, swimming, and then I went, I was a runner. Uh, and um, I, I got injured when I was in my late teens running and, and obviously um, saw various people and ended up having surgery on Achilles tendon when I was 20. And, and, and obviously that sort of licked my interest in, in, in the career even though I was already you know very keen and um, I, I decided that um, you know physio, physio was going to be the, the way forward rather than PE mm-hmm. um, so did that and and obviously because you know if you're in sport and, and everybody that's in sport will, will understand this that you, you you meet lots and lots of people and you get lots of connections and and even when I was at physio school I was helping out at the local swimming squad and the, the, the coach from the local swimming squad was very well connected and so then that gets you you know seen by various people and I used to travel around at, at major competitions with the swimming squad um, so you get you, your face gets known and then obviously after qualification I was asked to do 
uh, various uh, cover various tournaments and, and competitions. And then because I'd been in athletics, people knew me in athletics and I started asking me to, to cover um, tournaments and, and competitions for there. So, uh, but at that time, uh, that was all done in the spare time. So, I mean, I had to do, you know, I did my training. There was no degree at, the, at that time. It was a diploma. Um, and then once you qualified, you went into the hospitals, NHS hospitals, which was the expected thing for you to do. And you were expected to do two or three years where you'd go around all the departments to decide, you know, where you wanted to pursue your career. Um, they didn't really encourage you to go into sport because obviously if you went into sport you were a loss to the hospital so um, uh, all the sporting activities was were done sort of in the evenings and, and at weekends which is when sport occurs anyway so and we didn't get paid for it we did it just because we loved it um, and um, so I did my time in the hospital and then I went down to London and worked in hospitals down there, continued doing various rotations. And, and then um, I got a, a job at the Princess Grace Hospital, which is a private hospital in London, uh, and um, did um, cardiothoracic work and, and um, uh, sort of heart surgery, this big heart surgery unit there, and really loved it. I enjoyed it immensely. And I was there for a few years. Um, but at the same time, I covered Thames Valley Harriers on a training night and, you know, was the physio there and the athletes used to come and see me. And I set up a, a clinic at the sweatshop, which was Chris Brasher's um, sports shop in Teddington. And we opened a, a clinic there, an advisory clinic for people coming in and buying shoes. And, and so that, that went down very well. Um, and then after a few years in London, um, I moved back to Manchester uh, and got a job as a senior on an orthopaedic ward and, and again still continued to do my sport sort of at weekends and uh, had a friend who used to write um, for athletics magazines and he also was the doctor for the England uh, athletics team so he asked me then to cover uh, a couple of internationals uh, and uh, a training camp in, in Africa, South Africa. Um, which I did uh, and again you were very much on your own it was just you know in those days it was very rare a doctor traveled with you you were you know you just took what you thought you needed not a great deal of electrical equipment um, and um, just got on with it <laughs> um, lots of massage I know a lot of physios these days and not that keen on, on doing massage but I always felt that was a, a fabulous way of connecting with your athlete and also um, it, it teaches you how to palpate, it teaches you how to um, uh, distinguish between um, muscle in spasm and muscle that's not in spasm and, and, and I felt it, it gave me a, 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 a deeper understanding of, of athletes who were injured um, so I was always happy to, happy to do that um, and then I um, was asked to go back again by swimming coaches I've known to, to go and cover a few swimming um, tournaments. I was asked to go and do a junior tournament in Greece before the Athens Games. I can remember that because we went, we went to the pool um, where the Olympics would be 
uh, and it was a, a, a real dump <laughs> and there was dogs running up and down the side of the pool and the water was a funny green and but anyway we <laughs> we uh we did that and then um and then the the what was the asa then it's now gb swimming um said to me um oh do you fancy uh, covering a, di a diving competition um, and i had done a bit of diving when i was a kid so, oh yeah i'll have a go and this is how it was you know he just oh yes i'll i'll have a go so i covered the world championships um junior world championships in czechoslovakia in the back of beyond um and again very basic no doctor there um and and of course you know one of our divers has an accident and breaks his arm uh, and i'm phoning home to my friend doctors over here and they say getting him get him back don't let them touch him you know <laughs> so, sort of thing. so anyway that's how you you know you grow your education and it's um and, and i stayed with the divers and i was with the divers great britain diving team for 10 years which was uh, which was great fun traveled all over the world with them to all the grand prix um and uh, I did everything apart from an Olympic game. So world championships, European championships, general sort of internationals. Um, and uh, yeah, I was with them, both junior and seniors I covered uh, for 10 years. And that was with a job at the same time. So, you know, again, I used to take holidays. I used to, you know, um, do things like that. And then uh, I was doing some private work. So I just used to take time off when I, I wanted to, to travel with the team um so i did that for 10 years and um and in the meantime i'd, I'd started a work a, a job old time frames get a bit confused for me now um i i was asked to i was working in a sports injuries clinic that's right and the doctor at the clinic was the doctor for a local football club and uh they the the physio at the club had had to go in um, into hospital for an operation so they didn't have a physio and the manager of the club uh, wanted a qualified physio and again at that time a lot of the physios in football clubs were not you know physiotherapists they weren't chartered physiotherapists they were just they were just first aiders really um, but this manager wanted a, a qualified physio and um, the doctor said to him at the time, you know, what about a woman? And it was like, oh, shock horror. You know, it was like, you know, you can't have a woman in a football club, you know. And he virtually said, well, you know, if you don't have a woman, you won't get a qualified physio. Because again, at that time, there, were, there weren't that many men in the profession. And the men in, in the, the, I mean, when I trained, there was two out of 30 people on our course who were men. Uh, and the men either went into private practice or went into uh, lecturing or got the, the the few jobs in sport. So there just weren't the men around to cover all the football clubs, all the cricket teams, etc. So uh, anyway, this manager agreed to me and and uh, I went in there and I was going to go there for a, a couple of months while this guy was in hospital. I ended up staying four years. So, uh, you know. Um, so again, nothing planned too much. Um, but then while I was there, that you know, the FA found out I was there and asked me to start doing some lecturing for them, which I used to go down to Lillishall and do some lecturing for them there. And then the FA took over the women's football team because up to that point it, it had been the women's football association. It was a it was a separate association. And when the 
when the FA took over, they asked me to be the physio for the England women's team, and I did that for five years. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, and then um, I was doing some private work to sort of get some money, and then the job at United came up, and um, I was lucky enough to get that, which, uh, and I stayed there for ten years. Um, so I was the lead physio for the for the academy um, for ten years. Um, under Sir Alex, which is another uh, story in itself. Um, fabulous time, a great time. Uh, and then um, I moved over to Qatar and went to Aspire Academy and was the lead physio there. And Aspire Academy was not only football, it was a huge athletics programme. There was squash, table tennis, fencing, uh, and, and various other table, yeah, table tennis and stuff like that. But lots of different sports, um, and I had a team of, of 10 physios there, um, and we had doctors, and I mean, the most fantastic facility, um, and um, right alongside uh, Aspatar Sports Medicine Hospital, so, you know, I was part of that as well. So, um, met some fabulous, knowledgeable people, and learned such a lot. Um, and then um, about 2018, I came back from Qatar. I'd been there for eight years. Um, and as soon as I came back, I was asked to go out to India to do um, set up an academy, a football academy there um, with a few people that I'd been in Qatar with. Um, and I was there for 12 months and then COVID hit. And that just suddenly, you know, sort of came to a standstill. Uh, and so I spent two years while COVID was on, just you know, uh, thinking I was retired and uh, enjoying life and getting very bored. <laughs> and I did a few online lectures and, and, and marked a few PhDs. And then um, in January uh, this year, uh, I took on a position as a lecturer at Manchester Met University in the physio department, which I'm enjoying thoroughly. So that's a quick. Uh, uh, American tour of my career, if you like. <laughs> I mean, that, that's so, a, an incredible, incredible career path. And I just thank you very much for sharing that. And I think it, it just so I've done everything really, everything from from you know NHS hospital, done the, the rounds of NHS hospitals, private hospitals, private sort of clinics, uh, you know, um, private practice sport at every level from part-time through to elite, um, international sport, a, a, a number of different um, sports. Um, and then the final thing was teaching, which I, I've just started now. So I think I've done a bit of everything over the, over the career, yeah, so. Well, it, it's, it's a great one to listen to there, Mandy. And I think it really does highlight the importance of just, you know, the, the hard work and the passion alongside that as well like you say and back then it was very much you worked in the hospital and sport was your voluntary activity you did in the evenings and weekends and you know mm. putting in that time even though you weren't getting paid for it I think a lot of people now think well why would I volunteer my time you know when I could be at home or wherever it is I'm going to give up my time but you never know what's going to lead to as you were saying there like all these opportunities yeah. that suddenly presented itself to mm. you as well how did you mm. find um obviously you spend a number of years in different sports getting a lot of experience there you highlight there making the move into football where the culture was very different back then with regards to women working in the football uh, and mm. then 
getting the call up to go to Manchester United and work under Sir Alex, like in a very different environment there. So what was that like making that transition into Manchester United? Um, well, um, by the time I got to United, I knew a lot of a lot of people. I knew a lot of the coaches, a lot of the coaches at United and in many, many sort of, you know, Premier League clubs and, and all clubs, really. They've all been ex-players, you know, particularly the, the um, coaches in the academy. And a lot of them I'd met when I was at the I was at Bury for, for, for a number of years. And a lot of players had passed through Bury at one point. So quite, I knew quite a lot of the coaches at United already. Um, I'd met Sir Alex a couple of times in the meantime, and I, and I sort of knew the physio staff. Um, so, and I was actually interviewed by Sir Alex, which was a, an interesting uh, experience to say the least. Um, and, uh, but, uh, um, so it, it wasn't such a big transition um, because as I said, I'd been working in football. I mean, obviously the facility was massively different. Um, and, and the size of the you know the place was different, but but there again, um, I I worked at Carrington, which is obviously the training ground, and and it and it, it does feel very much like a family, and all these Premier League academies, um, and, and you know Premier League training grounds really they are like a family unit, and everybody knows everybody else, and you know everybody helps each other out, and. And, and, and especially at that time, because it's, it wasn't as big as it is now. Um, but, um, you know, it wasn't such a daunting sort of experience um, because everybody, you know, just welcomed me so, you know, so nicely and, and, and straight away. I mean, even the, the, the staff on the, on the reception, you know, it was, it was just like, oh, yeah, come in, you know, have a cup of tea. You know, it was very much... Uh, you know, and that's how it was. And, and and I have to say that was because of Sir Alex in a way, because he made sure that everybody felt important. Everybody was, um, you know, equally as important in whatever role they had, whether it was, you know, the physios or the, the, the reception staff or the, you know, the, the, the green keepers or, you know, everybody was made to feel that they, they played a significant role in the success that the club had. Uh, and that was from him. Um, and, and I think that's why, you know, during, certainly I joined in 2000 and went to 2010. It was a massively successful period um, for United, you know, winning, you know, I think every season I was there, we won something, you know, um, but a lot of it was down to his attitude and, and the way the staff would bend over backwards to do anything for him. Uh, and that wasn't just the footballers, you know, it was everybody, you know. Um, you just wanted to, to, to make things successful because of him, you know, because he, he had such a sort of a, a, a powerful personality and um, he was so supportive in everything everybody did. Um, and he was just like a father figure to everybody, to every member of staff, not just the footballers. Um, and so I, I do put that down, you know, to the reason why the, the club was so successful when he got his feet, <laughs> you know, when he sort of found his ground. Um, and uh, it, it was amazing, an amazing experience. Yeah. I mean, I've read uh, numerous things about Sir Alex. And I think that ties in nicely with just what true leadership is, as you hear about, like, you know, those who just care about everyone within their staff and just like, no oh, matter yeah. how, how, as we say, quote unquote, you're, 
small your job could be perceived to be, you still played a very important role to the overall uh, development and performance of that club. You know, whereas mm -hmm. most people would tend mm -hmm. to think, oh, well, it's just the, the upper echelon coaches who are going to drive things forward and maybe the greenkeepers aren't that important. But as you say there, Sir Alex, you know, the, everyone was important to him and what they were doing was important to him. And, and not just that, I mean, you know, he used to be the first in virtually every morning and he used to sort of have, he used to go in early purposefully to have his, his breakfast with the, with the um, greenkeepers and the laundry. And and the and the kitchen staff and and you know he he got to know them he got to know you know the families and the kids and he he remembered it all you know he remembered who everybody you know was and and um, and um, and so he made that point of of getting to know his staff um, and and taking an interest in them and um, and so everybody you know felt that they knew him and, and, and wanted to please him in many ways. And, I, and I've never, ever met anyone that can work a room as well as he can, you know, and, and people are just in awe of him and, and quite rightly so, because he has got this persona that's, that is awe-inspiring and I don't know what else way to describe it, but, um, but he was massively um, supportive in everything that I did. And, um, and he, he, was the one that first asked me if I wanted to do my PhD and he was the one that sort of you know prompted where it was going to be in a way because he said I want to know why young footballers get injured you know why do they get injured to the point where we can't take them on you know promising young players who get that badly injured and 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 why does this happen I want you to tell me <laughs> and that was that was basically it you know uh, and that's how you know that's how my sort of academic journey started in a way uh, was was him his prompting and all the way through uh, my PhD was saying well what are you up to now what what are you telling me tell it to me straight don't give me all this fancy stuff just telling me what does it mean you know but he, he was massively supportive and you know when I when I did get my PhD you know I have a huge bouquet of flowers and you know I mean he was he was fantastic you know um, and um, and made sure sort of everybody knew that had done it. You know, he, he didn't just, you know, he, he made sure that the club celebrated it and it wasn't just, you know, for me and, and, and we were all big part of a family really, you know. So um, it, it meant a lot, you know, it meant a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a great area as well, Mandy, just to have that support and that as well and trying to answer that big question for the club, as you say, and something I'd love to dive into um mm. this regards to you know your research through it and what what did it look like that process of you know you initially starting with the club um you know with regards to injury rates within young players because as sir alex highlighted there you know you've invested so much time developing uh youth athletes through that academy structure and then you can't take them on to senior level because of injuries mm. as well so how did that look um in the early stages and then undertaking your own research for your phd what was the end outcome with that? How did that steer the ship with regards to how the club approached things going forward? Well, what we wanted to try and do is we were trying to see if we could isolate the, the boys that were most vulnerable, really, and just to see see why why they were. So, so you know, and at that time, there was very, very, very little research done in, in any aspect of youth of youth sport never mind football football probably and still is probably the most researched area but there's a lot of good reasons for that and um 
I mean, with with particularly with professional football, when you've got the academy, you've got the boys from nine, and and they're a captive audience really. So you know, you, you, the club usually controls everything that these kids do from the age of nine. So as far as you know, medical records and everything, you've got a good you know starting point from when they join the club at nine most of them anyway and there's very few sports that have kids that young so that's why there isn't the research out there you know in kids that young so uh, and, and most of the research in sport if you look at it say rugby cricket etc it, it's done at around about the age of 16 or 17 and in a way they're not kids anymore you know they've got past the the, the sort of the the, the uh, difficult stages in a way, um, which is when, when they start to grow. And, and one of the first things that you notice straight away when you're working specifically in, in kids sport, or when I was working with the footballers, is that they're all growing at a different time. Well, why is that? You know, <laughs> you know why, do, why do some grow when they're 10 and others grow when they're 15? You know, and that in itself, you know, it creates massive problems, not only for the child, but for the coach as well. So, you know, we started doing sort of um, research in, in the difference between the boys and, and, and found out very quickly that the boys and girls, it's just that we didn't have any girls at the club at the time, but uh, it, it is the same for girls. We know that now um, they they. Um, all grow at different rates and at different times and and um, but that's normal you know there's nothing wrong with them you know um, but that's normal um, and so we started to look at ways of how we could measure the way they grew and how mature they were uh, and um, we we looked at doing the wrist x-ray um, and in fact the wrist x-ray um, has been a method used to sort of age, if you like, to, to, to age children. And it's been used for, for many years for, for lots of different reasons, but it was mainly used for, for children who had hormone, hormonal deficiencies. And they used to have a wrist x-ray when they went in to see the specialist in the hospital to see if they weren't growing properly or they, you know, they needed hormones to prompt the growth or, or whatever. So, so then we adapted that to just look at the differences in maturity of all the boys from the age of nine in the academy. And it's not really been used in, in, in sport before, although um, Boca Juniors in Argentina had been using it, but they were using it because a lot of their boys uh, had been coming from the favelas. So very, very um, uh, poor um, uh, environments. And they were looking at the wrist x-ray to see if there was any, any way they could look at the kids who had a, um, a less nutritious diet, really, to see. And what they actually found was the kids from the poor backgrounds who were eating staples like potatoes and rice and things like that actually had a better diet than some of the more um, uh, prosperous kids because they were all on this junk food that they could afford to buy. Um, but that's why they were doing the wrist x-rays more than just finding what the maturity was. But so we x-rayed all our academy boys um, over a number of years. Every year we just used to do it once. And it's I mean, it's quite a, it used to be and it still is to a point a, a little bit controversial using an x-ray um, on somebody. But 
but the amount of radiation exposure that these boys were getting was 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 the same as you know sitting on a flight from Manchester to Spain you know so it's it's minimal it's minimal irradiation um or, or you know the the old tube televisions if you sat in front of that for a couple of hours you know you'd get radiation so so and and, and even uh, going back to Aberdeen uh, I was always told by one of the professors that, that walking around Aberdeen is quite a dangerous thing because with it being mainly granite that emits far more radiation than than any you know than concrete so so you get far more radiation walking around Aberdeen for an hour than you would do walking around Manchester so, <laughs> so um, but you know it's, it's just background radiation so so it's that minimal um, for one x-ray um, but from that, we, we, we established where all the boys were on the maturity continuum. Uh, and you could see from that, so for every age group, so all the boys are coming in in year age groups, so you'd have an under nine, an under 10, an under 11. And for every one of those groups, from under nine through to under 16, in every year, and for every year that we did it, there was about a five or six year spread for each age group. So, so you'd have boys coming in at nine who, you know, some of them were already going through puberty and had a bone age of, of biological maturity of 12. And some of them who were miles off and had a biological maturity of six. And, and so, you know, in a nine-year-old age group, you've got boys who were really six and boys who were really 12. So for me, the difficulty was for the coach. Where does the coach pitch the session? Because every one of the boys that had come into Manchester United's academy and, 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 and similarly to all the other Premier League academies, they've been brought in because they were seen to be the best of the bunch in the area. So they'd all been scouted. That none of them were, you know, had, had sort of put the hand up and say, can I come to your academy? They were all invited in. So, so as the coach, when you've got such a diverse age group within a, an age group, where do you pitch the session? Because if you pitch it in the middle, it's going to be too hard for the six-year-olds, but not hard enough for the 12-year-olds. So that was, you know, that was before we'd even started looking at injuries and things like that. And that was the same for the under 10s, for the under 11s, for the under 12s and the 13s, et cetera, right through. And in fact, we extended the, the, the sort of the measuring a little bit and, and measured some of the boys who were in the under 18s and, and beyond and found that quite a few of the players um, were still not fully mature at 21 or 22. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 it's something that you think about, you know, these, these players who were playing, you know, with the first team, they were, they were training with the first team who were not yet fully mature. And were they more, more vulnerable than, than the others? Um, so that sort of led on to the sort of the injury, you know, um, investigations, if you like. Um, because it, it always seemed to me that the boys who were less mature, who were playing, playing with boys who would be more mature, would be more vulnerable to injury. Because obviously, 
what you can see on an x-ray is big gaps where there's no bone but actually it's cartilage that is there but it's just not ossified into bone and you'd think that that would be more vulnerable um, to trauma uh, especially in a tackle and things like that but in fact what most of the research showed was that it was the boys who were more mature that were getting more injuries and and again it's not been totally confirmed but what what it's assumed now is a lot of it is because they're growing so much more quickly than the later maturers um, that could, you know, uh, and we all know that when kids start to grow, the coordination goes all over the place, you know, all of a sudden they've got an extra, you know, inch or two on a, on a limb that wasn't there you know, the month before, because you can, you know, see a couple of centimeters growth in, in you know, a few weeks when they're going through a spurt. And obviously it takes a while for the muscles to adjust, you know, for their sense of balance and coordination to adjust. And that's when they start to go through this period of adolescent awkwardness. Um, and, and for the early maturers, they seem to go through that more quickly and don't have as much time to adjust. Whereas the later maturers do tend to seem to adjust a little bit better and, and don't appear to be as vulnerable. Uh, to injury so it's all fascinating stuff <laughs> I mean yeah. that, that's really interesting to use that as well and you're saying there Mandy for the the x-rays you conducted with each year group was it just you just did the once with each player and then you worked out what their their growth uh, maturation pattern was going to look like from there was it or did you follow up with yeah so further? yeah so what we what you do is um you take an x-ray and then you you read the x-ray and it gives you a score and that score then gives you a bone age. Okay. So it's a, what you're looking at when you're taking an x-ray, you're looking at skeletal maturity. Um, so um, other types of maturity you can look at, you can look at the sexual maturity or you can look at somatic maturity, whereas, and the somatic maturity is when you're looking at, you know, um, body dimensions, height, weight, you know, body fat compositions and things like that. And they're all different types of maturity that you, you get a score for. And they can't be sort of mixed and matched. You know, you've got to look at the same thing all the way through. So we were looking at skeletal maturity, which is said to be uh, by a number of authors, the gold standard of, of measuring biological maturity. Um, so you take an X-ray, you only take one X-ray, um, of the hand and wrist and, and you can from that get a, an age, a biological age, a skeletal age. Um, and then we just used to repeat it on an annual basis. And then you could see the change year on year. Um, and, um, and again, um, you would see that some boys um, might only change by six months, even though it's been a 12 month period that the, the maturity might have only you know, it might be going very slowly and it may only be a six month change, where others it might be a, a two and even I've seen three years change, depends on, you know, where they are in the growth spurt. So um, it, it's, uh, it is interesting, it, it is interesting stuff. And you never know, you know, you can have two boys that stand next to each other um, who are the same height and one of them can be a late mature and one of them can be an early mature. You can't always tell by the, by the height because obviously some boys might be destined to be very tall and, and others you know short and and quite often the, the short ones were the late mature the early maturers and the 
the big ones were the early maturers, you know. So, yeah, you couldn't tell just by looking at them. You had to do the test um, to, to find out, you know, where they were on that continuum. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And you were saying about injury there as well, Mandy, just because there's such a wide disparity sometimes within age group categories there. So obviously we can say like, okay, uh, trauma-related trauma injuries through tackle situations and stuff. What about uh, more growth-related injuries and that that you typically see, and how would you uh, diagnose and treat them? So I'm thinking things like osteoplatters and Seavers disease and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, well, you, you used to, you can, you can get them in both ways, really. So some of these sort of growth-related problems are triggered by a traumatic event. So it may well be, you know, they get a kick on the knee or a kick on the ankle, and it would trigger off Seavers or... or um, or osgoslatters and and but then and others who who tend to suddenly go through a, or, or are about to go through a growth spurt they tend to get very uncomfortable and sore and and um and then as soon as they start to grow and the muscles start to get a little bit more taut and they start to pull on these attachments onto the bone which is always around a, a growth plate so that's what makes them so so sore and so you know uncomfortable um, and um, one of the things that we found I mean when I first started out um, a severe case of Osgood's flatters used to be put in a cylinder cast a plaster cast for six weeks so they just you know they used to you know put a, a cast on from hip to uh, from hip to ankle for an Osgood's flatters for six weeks to rest it and so, you know, they, they take the cast off and all there was left was like a string where the leg was, you know. I mean, there's no muscle left at all. And, it, you know, after a while, because it, because at that, at that time, you know, children's injuries, certainly sports injuries, were just never researched or, you know, followed up. So everything went to the surgeon. And, of course, all they did was just cast it or, you know, splint it or, or whatever, never thinking that physiotherapy could play a part in it. Um, but what we found out really is that as long as the um, the gait of a of a child, whether it's boy or girl, it doesn't matter. As long as the gait isn't affected by the discomfort that they're feeling, either from you know heel, knee, or hip, um, then there's no reason why they can't continue as long as they can tolerate the discomfort. So, so if they've got soreness in the knee, but it's just a soreness and they can get by and they forget about it while they're playing and training, they can continue for as long as they want. But as soon as they start to limp, or if they, it, you know, if you notice that the, the running cadence has changed, and, and quite often it's the coach that notices it, or the physio, um, then you need to modify the training. You don't always have to stop them. You can usually just by um uh monitoring it and, and just cutting back on almost like the contact elements of training so you'd allow them to do the skill stuff as long as they're not doing repeats and repeats and repeats of the same thing um but then then bring them off when it comes to the contact time um and and maybe do some physio with them then um but but the object is to keep them in training for as long as possible for lots of different reasons um a, there's no evidence to suggest that you're doing them any harm by keeping them in training. Um, you're not going to, you know, create lasting damage. Um, and um, also, 
what what 12 or 13 year old boy wants to spend time with the physio not many you know um and and you're trying to keep them within their social group as well so um because that can have a, a devastating effect if they're out for a long you know a long period of time so um so there'd only be you know the very extreme cases where you would actually you know stop them from training altogether um and what we would always encourage because we did a lot of education with the with the parents and and the boys when i was at united and we used to talk a lot about um you know overuse injuries and and growth related injuries and really encourage them to um to report them because the earlier that they, they were reported the less likely they were to have to miss training but you, you know you'd always get one or two that just didn't want to report it because they thought they were going to get pulled out of training and you know sometimes you'd have a pushy parent so oh, you'll be all right you once you get there you know you'll be fine um and and then they were the ones that ended up having to be pulled out altogether so by educating the parents and the and the players as much as possible they were then not that frightened to report the injury. And we used to say, you know, the earlier you report it, the less chance you have to miss and this, that and the other. And it's not a disease. It's just a process that you're going through. And in fact, you know, it's a positive sign because it means you're getting bigger and, you know, try and put a positive spin on it. Um, and, and that's why I think sometimes, you know, when this when they call it Osgoslas disease and Sever's disease, it sounds quite overwhelming to, to some kids and parents. So we never really called it that we just sort of said oh you know that's a great sign because you're growing and you know you're going to be catching up you know you, all your all your mates in the same group and you know but you can't you know if you can't run properly then we just have to stop you in case you injure something else you know so so that's what how we always try to get around that um and the, and the and it turned out that there weren't that many that we'd have to pull out completely. Uh, and again, we were in a very fortunate um, position at United because if they were pulled out completely, you know, we had an Alter G, we had a, a, an underwater treadmill, we had various things that we could use where we could still keep them going, you know, rather than they just sitting them on a bike every session, you know, um, we could do, you know, a, a variety of things. And I know, other people aren't as fortunate to have that sort of facility, but well, that's how how we did it. Um, I mean, that, that's really interesting to hear that process through as well, Manny. And uh, unbelievable thing back to someone having Osgood flowers and again fully casted for six weeks is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. For students listening, then you know who's maybe come across <clears throat> in clinic on placements, and you know, kids are more athletically minded. You know, from an amateur standpoint, even. For some of these things like Oshkut Slayers, Seavers and stuff like that, is there particular age bands we need to be looking out for just to consider this as well yeah, for well, diagnosis treatment? Yeah, so so basically um, uh, when um, a child matures, they, they tend to mature from the foot upwards. Okay. <laughs> so so, um, so the Severs disease will be around about 9, 10 and 11 age group-ish. 
and then the articles and then that once that sort of calcaneum growth plate and, and the, all the growth plates around the foot have, have fused um, then it moves up to the knee um, around the the the, the, um, the patella you know for for your cindy glasses and and your article slatters and that's usually around 13 or 14 years and then once that's fused it moves up towards the the hip and the groin and and that's the last area to fuse in the in the lower limb so um that's why you you often get 16 or 17 year old um boys who who are suspected of having adductor problems but in fact it's still it's just it's a it's a growth related problem um where the adductors and these now very strong muscles are pulling on these open growth plates that still haven't fused at, at that age um, and, and particularly around the pubis and there's there's loads of evidence of of you know the strong you know obviously when they get into 16 and 17 you know the the, the the they've got a lot stronger the musculature has got a lot stronger and that those really strong muscles the the training more because they're obviously say playing as an under 18, um, the training more, um, doing a lot of multi-directional work and those strong adductors start to pull uh, on their attachment around the pubis and around that area. And um, they get a lot of groin related problems and, and they are, yeah, it's adductors. And it's not adductors at all. It's actually, you know, the fact that they've, they've not got full fusion at the, around the pubis. Uh, and just an extended period of time to allow everything to settle down uh, will completely solve the problem. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I've got loads of examples of, of CAT scans and things where you can really see the pubis almost eaten away by the, the continual pulling of the adductors on this very soft, immature bone. And it, it looks like, um, you know, a 60-year-old person's skeleton you know that's just sort of riddled with arthritis and it's just because you never allowed that that area to fuse um but as i say you give them an extended period of rest and it, and it will all settle down um but you know i've i've you know heard of lots of um young players who've had adductor releases and things like that um you know, and in fact, probably it was never required in the first place. I mean, adductor release will obviously help because it takes the pressure off the attachments. Uh, but in fact, if they'd have just left it, if they're prepared to wait for a bit uh, and let them fuse properly, then the problem would have settled down. And that was always something that, that they allowed to happen at United. They never pushed players. And particularly because I've got the evidence that, you know, well, that player is the late developer, you know, he's not going to reach his full height until he's 21, 22. Right. OK, well, we know that. So let's wait <laughs> or let's take a chance on him because we know he's going to, you know, grow a bit more and things like that. Um, so I was very fortunate again, uh, but, but it was an open minded and again led by Sir Alex, who 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 always just used to say I'm not bothered what happens between them coming in at nine to 18 as long as you can hand them to me as a complete player you know you need to just you know develop them work them look after them to give them to me at 18 so I can take them into the first team um, so I'm not bothered how long it takes he used to say you know just do it in the in the safest way 
you know, make sure they're not getting injured. Uh, and if we have to wait for a few, we'll wait for a few. And in, and in fact, because I'd done these annual measurements on a, on a number of boys, when it came to the point uh, at 16, when they would choose, when a club would choose whether they were actually going to take a player on uh, as an under 18 on a full-time sort of basis, um, because I'd got uh, quite a number who I could prove had not finished growing and they were small and they're not finished growing. They said, right, well, we'll take them on. Uh, whereas they wouldn't have done because they were so small. They said, oh, they're not big enough. They're not going to be able to manage. But then for a couple of years, they sort of held them back and, and you know, waited for them to mature. Uh, and a number of those actually ultimately made it into the first time team and, and into the England squad as well, because we allowed them to progress at their own rate and didn't try and rush them. So just having that bit of information was the difference between them being kept on at the club or being released. And then joining another club and coming back and scoring three goals against us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is a possibility. So, yeah. you know, we didn't let that happen. <laughs> but, I mean, that's a key, key piece. I think uh, Alex, Sir Alex and Man and I are very much ahead of the curve on that long-term athlete development side of things. I know oh, very much back, so, yeah. yeah. Looking back in my yeah. career, when I first started on strength conditioning, especially within rugby, it was mm. very much like, okay, your your top five male professional probably weighs X amount and he lifts this number or runs this fast. So why does our 14-year-old not do this? Let's make sure he does this. Mm. It's like, well, he's 14. We're talking against 14 versus someone who's in probably their early 20s who's had numerous years of development. So let's approach it like we're doing now with long-term development and slow cook them rather than mm. trying to just whack up the heat and get this player injured mm. at this stage. Mm. And, and, you know, and, and quite often, if you've got a situation where you've got a, a small boy who's been chosen um, to come into an academy like Manchester United, he's obviously been chosen because he's talented. Um, and even the small ones, they have to be extra talented to actually show up against these big boys that you see. You know, and particularly when they're choosing them at nine. So there's, a, there's an awful lot of difference between a boy who's born in September and he's nine in September and a boy who's born in August and he's nine the following August. That difference in, in growth and development is massive. But they're all being judged by scouts to bring in, you know, but they're being judged prior to that. They're being judged when they're eight, seven or eight. Um, and... And the problem is that many of the people, the coaches can only work with what they're brought in. So many of the scouts don't have education on growth and maturity. They're not taught how to recognize the difference. They're not taught how to um, check birth dates to see, well, that little one's you know nearly 12 months younger than that one. So maybe that's why he's not running quite so quickly or, or looks a little bit more clumsy or doesn't look as you know uh, as substantial on the, on the pitch um, and and quite often you know if you look at the research overwhelmingly it'll show that the that in most sports and a lot of work was done in America on ice hockey that in age group sport overwhelmingly about 75 percent of the intake will be from the first three months of that intake year and 
the thing is that they're just bringing in the biggest kids and they might not be the most talented. They're the biggest at the time and they probably score loads of goals because they're pushing all these little ones out of the way. Well, those little ones could come in, you know, and grow six more inches than these big lads that would just be a bit later and be far more talented and skillful. Um, and, and that's what we need to be looking at, you know, when we're bringing in these kids. It's not just the biggest and the strongest because they may have even be coming close to the end of their growth. And in fact, by the time they're 14, they might be the smallest on the pitch, but they just got there a bit earlier than everybody else. So, so it means that, you know, some of these late developers are just being dismissed. And it was particularly interesting when I was in Qatar because the Qatari population is so small, um, we couldn't afford to miss any kids. You know, there's, it's that such a small population, you know, if you're, say, missing a, a third of kids or the late developers, then, you, you, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot, really. And, and so we had to make sure that the scouts were aware that they had to, you know, look at all different aspects, not just size when they were scouting, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, because, you know, you, you can't afford to miss a big chunk of the, 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 the youth population. Um, uh, just because we're not we're not uh, looking at the right things, you know. No. So that, that's key. I think that's a, that's a great message there as well, Mandy. To take that forward. Now, obviously, as I said to you before, we set this podcast up initially just to be a, a resource for students to tap into to see uh, insights into the field as well as the breadth of uh, work physios can get involved in. On that, given your extensive background here, Mandy, for anyone who's listening, you know, what would be the best advice you give to physio students around either, you know, who want to either make the move and work in sport or, you know, go down this long-term athlete development model around growth maturity and, you know, working with more so, or how to prepare to work better with youth athletes, either from the amateur professional level? Um, I think they've got to be prepared to volunteer. Um, I think that's the, one of the things. And, and I mean, when I when I was coming through and I was just starting my career uh, and I know it's difficult these days, I paid for all my own courses. I didn't you know, expect to be paid by the hospital or wherever I was working for the course. If I wanted to go on a course at the weekend, I paid for it and I went. Because, but because it's not when you go on these courses, it's not just the learning that you get, which is obviously substantial, but it's the people you meet. And that networking can be as as, as important uh, as anything. And then particularly when you go to, you know, go to a conference where you, you can meet and, and, and talk to these people and, and, and volunteer, because there's always something going on that you can volunteer for when you go to these big conferences. And, and but don't expect for other people to, to pay for you to do it. If, you, if you're that keen, you'll just you'll, you'll do it. You'll find the money, uh, you know, you'll save up. And, and you'll you'll go to these things um and and that's what i did and 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 you know that's how you broaden your circle and you you find out about different sports as well um because it may well be that you you know you find out about a sport that you've not really considered before um so so there's that and and then the other thing is on all the placements they're on and it's just you know it's what i say to students now is ask questions don't be frightened of asking questions ask as many questions as you can because that's what all your educators are expecting 
if you don't ask questions, they think you know it all, or you think you know it all. And 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 I don't know it all. I'm I've been a physio for 40 years and I still have a lot to learn. So, you know, as a student, you've got masses to learn. So ask questions uh, and you know, uh, talk to people because people love talking about themselves, you know, and about, you know, various things that they're doing. So uh, for me, that's, that's, you know, key in, in, in broadening your, your environment and also your knowledge as well. Mm. That's yeah. some great advice there, Mandy. Thank you very much for that. Um, mm. Mandy, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to sit down and chat to you finally. Um, for anyone who's listening in who may have some more questions or wants to just follow some of your work, what's the best way they can do that? Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn. So um, uh, there's that there. Um, also, obviously, now um, I'm visible on MMU's um, the physio um, uh, page there. So, um, you know, they can reach me through through either of those. Yeah, it's not a problem at all. Yeah. Yeah, I'll make sure I pop them in our show notes as well. Mandy, okay. once again, been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. Bye-bye.